Welcome to The Passion Factor, pursuing a career in human rights in conjunction with Human Rights Pulse. My name is Vicky Praise. I am really thrilled to welcome Toby Cadman to The Passion Factor, pursuing a career in human rights. We will, I'm sure, hear more from Toby about his own career journey, but I just wanted to share a few highlights with you by way of introduction. Toby is the co-founder and head of Guernica 37 International Justice Chambers here in London. He is an established international law specialist in the areas of international criminal and humanitarian law, international terrorism, anti-corruption, maritime security, extradition and mutual legal assistance and human rights law. He lectures extensively on international criminal law, criminal procedure and human rights law and provided extensive advice and training to judges, lawyers and law enforcement agencies throughout the Balkans, Middle East, North Africa and South Asia. In terms of international advocacy, Toby has appeared and been instructed in matters before the International Criminal Court, National Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, the International Crimes Tribunal in Bangladesh, the European Court of Human Rights, the Bosnian War Crimes Chamber, the UN Human Rights Committee and the African Commission on Human and People's Rights. Toby, I am so very delighted to welcome you today to The Passion Factor. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be on here. The first question that I always ask my, my guests to the show is really, where did it all start? What motivated you to work in, in the human rights field? Uh, well, I, I think I can go back as far as, um, as, as Bosnia. Um, when, I, when I first went to Bosnia, was I think that was the time that really sparked the interest um, and I think uh, it, it would be fair and honest of me to say that I, I probably fell into my career uh, more than um, any conscious desire uh, to, to practice in the area that I'm doing now um, but I think so when I was at university uh, and I, I first met my wife who, who's from Bosnia um, and met members of her family and friends, I started to learn a lot about the Bosnian conflict that I wasn't um, so familiar with before that. Um, and then I think in 99, uh, the winter of 99 was when the first time I went to, to Bosnia. Um, and I think it was at that point that, that I, I did get an interest. But I think the, the sort of the first step into an international practice came when I was when I was doing what was then the bar vocational course, um, and I was on a weekend advocacy training course at Cumberland Lodge, um, and I came across uh, two members of the bar, two senior members of the bar, um, one who's now a judge, Sylvia de Bertadano, um, and spoke to her quite a lot about um, about practice in international law and, and I was drawn to her uh, quite interestingly. Um, um, she had uh, lots of champagne and no cigarettes and I had cigarettes and no champagne so it was a it was a convenient exchange and so we just got talking and she had worked on one of the first cases at the ICTY, the Tadish case and, and so uh, it sort of sparked my interest um, and then I started looking for an international placement after that those kind of conversations which just spark something and from there it goes on. Um, I've given a little bit, a very short sort of history of your, of your fantastic and really interesting career to date, but, but what has actually been, been your own career path? Perhaps you could kind of tell, tell us more from, from there. So, uh, so I first went to university to study um, a business degree and then halfway through my first year decided that I wanted to study law. Um, and so even from the from the beginnings of my legal studies, I was always drawn to criminal law um, and different different areas of international law. Um, I then uh, went on to the bar vocational course um, and then moved to Bosnia in 2002. And I think one of the main reasons why I first moved to Bosnia was um, I don't think I, I was prepared for, for how difficult it was going to be coming from a very non-traditional background to, to enter the, the profession um, and qualify as a barrister. It's, it's probably more difficult now than it was then, but even then it was, it was very, very difficult. And so I needed to, to get a little bit of experience, um, something to put on my CV to make 
myself a more attractive candidate to chambers. And so, so I went to Bosnia for what was a supposed to be a, a three month or two or three months secondment, um, for which I, I wasn't being funded, had no money, and so I was funding it myself. Um, I say myself, it was, uh, my, my wife was working um, at the time I was doing it. And so, so we sort of self-financed it together. Um, and so I moved to Bosnia in February of 2002 to, to join what was called the, the Human Rights Chamber for Bosnia and Herzegovina, which is a, it's a European Court of Human Rights style institution that was set up after the conflict in Bosnia to deal, to deal with uh, post-conflict human rights violations, not as a, a criminal court, but just dealing with human rights violations. And so I started there as uh, an international legal advisor to the court. And the first case that I, um, I uh, had to deal with was, uh, became known as the Algerian group. And so it was uh, a number of naturalized Bosnians from, uh, I think uh, four of them were from Algeria. And so they were they were picked up by the Americans and whipped off to Guantanamo. Um, and so that was the first case that I worked on. Um, and interestingly, it subsequently became um, an important case because one of the one of those who who was unlawfully taken to Guantanamo um, subsequently brought proceedings against Donald Rumsfeld, which then became the leading case on civilian oversight of of detention for Guantanamo detainees. So, um, so that was sort of one of my first cases and that was being thrown in at the deep end. And I only worked on a very small aspect of the case, but it was a, it was a great first case to work on. Um, from there, I stayed with the Bosnian Human Rights Chamber for about two years. Um, and then when the mandate came to an end, I was getting ready to return to the to, to UK to come home. Um, bear in mind that I'd only agreed to go there for three months to start with and I'd been there for two years by that point um, but a, around the time that we were thinking about coming back to the UK uh, I became aware that there was a, a domestic uh, war crimes court that was being set up in Bosnia which was the successor institution to, to the ICTY in The Hague um, and so I applied for a job as a uh, consultant on setting up the court, got the job and was one of the first internationals hired in to, to work on a project to set up a domestic court with international assistance. Um, initially, I was uh, appointed to, to run the defence office. Um, they didn't sit too well with my wife's family who had all lived through the siege of Sarajevo and so they were quite pleased when eventually I, I moved to to head the prosecution support section and so I, I worked on the prosecution section for the next best part of the next five years um, I worked on the transfer of cases from from the ICTY in The Hague um, and then um, I after that I did a, a short stint with the EU police mission on uh, working on organised crime and terrorism cases and then decided to come back to the UK. Um, and one of the main reasons I, I came back to the UK at that time was, um, I would say, one of my mentors uh, in Bosnia at, on the war crimes prosecution was uh, Joanna Corner QC, who's now a judge who sits at Southwark, but has just been appointed the, the British judge at the International Criminal Court. Um, so she she had moved to Chambers in Nine Bedford Row, um, and they were developing an international practice group. So um, so she uh, encouraged me to apply um, to to do my pupillage there. So luckily, because I I'd spent quite a lot of time in Bosnia, I was given a, um, a reduction in pupillage. So I only had to do six months um, six months in pupillage, and then was taken on as a tenant. Um, almost straight afterwards, uh, fortunately. And then one of the first cases that landed on my desk was from Bangladesh, um, working on a conflict from 1971, um, working for the defense, which I, I'd not done before. Um, and I think from the Bangladesh case, uh, which was uh, an incredible case to work on for a number of different reasons, uh, my career 
it really took off from that point internationally um, to the extent that it then led me into Syria, into Libya, uh, Lebanon, Iraq, um, and Pakistan. So um, I, I guess that was the starting point for my career. That's fascinating how, how you know you started on um, involved in it and just, just moved thereafter and, and all those different experiences brought you to, to where you are now. I just I wanted to just pick up on, on one point that you mentioned there about the challenges that you had coming from, as you said, a non-traditional background and, and what your reflections are on that um, generally. Yeah. Well, I think the 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 English bar and it's come under increasing attack recently um, by um, not providing sufficient opportunities to to people from different backgrounds, um, whether it's through through being from working class backgrounds because it's a very it's a very expensive uh, um, career to enter. Um, the training is is very expensive when. You know, I, I was very fortunate when, when I graduated from university um, that I, I was, I think I was the last year that benefited from what was then the maintenance grant. So I, I had all of my fees, university fees paid for by the state. Um, and I was given a, a grant of a few thousand pounds each year to live on. Um, and I was, I was the last year to, to benefit from that. But even after that, I then went to um, to do the bar vocational course um, and that was in 1999-2000 and even then it, it was in excess of £10,000 in London to do it which is now even uh, uh, astronomically higher like £18,000-£19,000 um, and then you have to factor in the cost of doing pupillage particularly if you're in uh, criminal chambers a pupillage grant is generally very low um, and if you want to do international work, generally you you have to do a period of an internship in one of the international tribunals or the UN or somewhere. And, and quite often um, those internships are, are, are not paid. Um, and so it's very difficult for people from a very modest background um, that are not uh, supported financially by, by their families. Um, it's very difficult um, to enter that. But... More than that, I think coming from a working class background, not having gone to a red brick university, um, I was not aware that that would, that would be a significant barrier to, to entering the profession, and it, and it really was. Yeah, absolutely, and, and I think you're right. We, we, we have to make inroads there definitely to make it a more open and accessible career for people at the end of the day it's really got to, to we've got to take those steps and, and, and sooner rather than later um, so if we think about sort of working in, and, and sort of breaking into the sector um, into the to the human rights world in your view what, what skills and qualities do you think that you need to work in in the human rights field just given the, the, the breadth and depth of your own experience internationally domestically and the type and nature of the work that you have done I think that you need to be very adaptable. Um, you need to be able to approach things in an unconventional way. I think if you're if you're very much fixed into being part of the the very standard traditional uh, barristers' chambers or from a solicitor side in in a law firm, um, I don't think that this this area of work is suitable. Um, because you things the way that you operate within the international human rights field is very very different. Um, I think it certainly my practice and at Guernica we 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 deal with things in a very unconventional or unorthodox way. Um, we are almost like a um, a cross between a barrister's chambers, a non-profit human rights NGO, um, and a law firm. So so there are sort of um, areas for, for how we operate um, that cross over into many different practices. Um, I think that you have to be able to um, have a very strong family behind you. Um, I'm very fortunate that I have a very understanding wife um, mm -hmm. in that the amount that I've had to travel um, 
that she has been able to put up with that and still puts up with me, so to her credit. Um, I think you need to have that. Um, the, the travel is one of the most difficult aspects to, to deal with, but I think one of the things that I have learned during the pandemic is that I don't think I needed to travel quite as much as I was traveling before. And I think now my practice, even once we get through this pandemic, I think my practice will be very different. Um, the travel I found very, very difficult to start with when I first, um, when I first entered the, this, this particular area of work. Um, for those that know me will know that I, I hate flying. I'm terrified of flying and I probably fly more than most people I know. Um, so it means I, I go through a stressful uh, uh, situation frequently. Um, so I think the travel is, is very difficult. Um, you are also put into very uncomfortable, sometimes dangerous situations. Um, so I've been detained on more than one occasion. Um, so I was detained in Bangladesh, um, albeit um, at the uh, Emirates Business Lounge um, at the airport. But the fact is I was, I was held by um, airport intelligence for 10 hours, not knowing what was going to happen. Um, I was detained in um, Tel Aviv airport with my colleague James Carl. We were, we were held um, for about seven hours at the airport. Again, not knowing what was going to happen with threats that we were going to be prosecuted and thrown in jail. And um, at one stage, uh, an interrogator showed me two photographs of my two children and told me I should have thought of them because I won't be seeing them again. So you have that stress to deal with. Um, I've been in Libya at a hotel where what seemed like um, a massive explosion occurred outside the hotel. It later turned out to have been a, um, a, a firework display that had gone wrong at a wedding, but at the time I thought it was an attack on a hotel. Um, so, you know, you have to be able to, to deal with that. You also have to be prepared to, to um, learn different areas of law very quickly. Um, the, the kind of work that we do and the kind of clients that we represent, it's not all just criminal law. Um, so I've dealt with aspects of family law, immigration law, uh, I've dealt with arbitration, um, negotiate, negotiating settlement disputes. So there, there, you have to be, I would say first and foremost, you have to be adaptable. Um, and I think you have to be a people's person. I mean, you have to be able to work with other people um, and you have to be able to go into an unfamiliar environment in Colombia or, or Bangladesh or Rwanda, wherever it might be, and work with local groups, local lawyers. Um, and again, not everybody is suited to, to that kind of, of work. But I think first and foremost, you've got to be passionate about what you do because it will consume your life completely. Um, for those that tell me that you have to have a work-life balance, it means they don't understand the work. You can't have a work-life balance. You have to understand that doing this kind of work uh, for a long period of time, you have to give up a lot and you have to be prepared to give up a lot. But the, the, the rewards for doing this kind of, kind of work are, are quite extraordinary. And I, I, and I would not change it for, for anything. No, I think I think all those points are very valid there. It's certainly, certainly the the work that we do can be dangerous, and and we put ourselves literally kind of in the line of fire. Um, you know, if we're going out to, to, to conflict zones or or um, or ravaged places, so we, we have to sort of be aware of that. And absolutely, at the, at the end of the day, it's a passion that drives us to do this work, and and it's very difficult to shut the door at the end of the day and just leave that work behind you because it it travels with us. It's very much within absolutely. us. Absolutely. We, we see now um, for many international careers that many um, employers, be it the UN, be it international um, NGOs um, or any other human rights organizations are increasingly now asking for some sort of advanced degree in human rights or public international law or some sort of iteration of, of that, but an advanced degree nonetheless. Um, and it would be really interesting to hear from you whether or not you think that it's, it's important, useful to, to, to go ahead 
on and, and get that advanced degree? And if so, you know, when is the best time to, to do that master's degree, i.e. straight after graduation or after a period of work experience? Because we know that doing a master's degree is, of course, an, a huge expense added on to already, you know, doing your undergraduate degree, but also um, time as well. So what, what are your thoughts about that? Well, I, actually, I did mine the wrong way around. So I, um, so I, I did my undergraduate degree from nine, uh, what was it? Uh, 97 to 2000 I guess and then my bar vocational course from 2000 2001 and then then I did my master's um, when I was in Bosnia um, and, and so I did my master's on international criminal law after I'd been working in international criminal law for the best part of, of seven years um, so I think the way that I did it was the wrong way around um, I, I learned the theory after I'd been um, doing the practice for a number of years. Um, I mean, I don't get me wrong, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And my, my dissertation was, was one of the most enjoyable uh, piece of written work that I've ever done. But I don't think that that was the right way to do it. Um, I think answering the first question, um, do I think it's necessary? Absolutely, yes, I do. Um, what I, what I can say is when we have advertised for pupils at Guernica in the past, um, we've just advertised again now for, for this year and next year, but when we first advertised in 2018, I think it was, um, I was struck by the number of candidates that had either a, a master's or a doctorate in international law. Uh, I was absolutely astounded by the quality of people that applied. Um, and I think because of the, the kind of work that we do, we need to have candidates that have that, that uh, educational grounding in principles of international human rights and international humanitarian law. I think it's very, very important. Um, it is, of course, important to have the practical experience, but I think it is important to have that, that firm grounding in the principles because, you know, if I'm working on a particular case, as I am now at the Kosovo Specialist Chambers, um, and just this morning I, I had to look at basic principles of um, Article 5 of the European Convention on, on, on detention. And um, I'm very fortunate that I currently have a pupil that uh, has a great deal of knowledge in that area. Um, I also have a colleague in James Carl who has a great deal of knowledge in that area. And so I think it, it does set you above the, the norm. Um, as to when is the best time to do that, um, one of the things that I, I think is uh, an improvement on the system now is where universities are offering the, the bar vocational or the bar uh, prep professional training course now combined with an LLM um, and I think that you'll see more and more students will will be taking that particular option I think that's a very good way of doing it um, you're combining your professional um, qualification with with a postgraduate uh, a degree in in your chosen field um, so I think that's that's the best time to be doing it um, I don't necessarily think it's essential to have a doctorate, um, but I think the the master's level advanced degree in international hu human rights law from a recognized um, educational institution, I think is very important. And I think that's probably the best time to do it. Yeah, absolutely. And if you, if you see now how many people are on master's courses, human rights master's courses, it's a hundred plus easily. Um, certainly here in the UK, and I, I would imagine sort of further afield as well. It's you know there's a huge a huge uptake of people to, um, going down that route and doing the, the masters. Absolutely, programs. absolutely. Um, I'll just to sort of give you an example. I, I won't name the person because I don't want to embarrass him. But um, <laughs> certainly when when I was working at previous chambers and um, there there was I, I wouldn't like to say that there was a division between the international practice group and the, the general crime practice group but there were obviously um, those that worked just on international work and those that worked on just criminal work and so 
um, we would occasionally have people from the general crime section that would want to do the international work. Um, one, because it, it was perceived as being better paid than domestic work, but also it was perceived as being much more interesting. Um, and so one, one particular, uh, well, more than one, but I remember one particular discussion was about how to transition from uh, having been a, an advocate in domestic crime was sufficient to to make the jump to uh, to international practice and um and so you know it struck me that you know without having that that masters or without having had uh, undertaken an internship or, or, or gained some experience in one of the the international tribunals or, or human rights monitoring bodies it's it's a very difficult transition to make um and I think that people need to understand that it's not just a matter of, of jumping into a new a, a new sexy practice. You know, you you've got to have been able to uh, to demonstrate the the knowledge and experience of that particular area of law. Um, and I think a, a combination of a master's and an internship um, gives people that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that kind of nicely segues to to my next question, which is around sort of the how how do individuals sort of stand out? So you've recruited and interviewed candidates for many human rights positions you just mentioned there for, for your um, pupils, et cetera. And it's a very tough, tough environment now to get your foot in the door. So in your view, what sort of makes for a standout, if I can say, quote unquote, human rights CV um, and cover letter and, and, and how, how can candidates really make themselves kind of shine in that way? One of the things that always, uh, well, there are two things that always strikes me uh, with candidates. And one is whether they've done any research into the institution, the chambers, whatever it might be, that they're applying. Um, um, many of them do not. Um, and I appreciate that there is a, a sense of frustration with uh, candidates applying to 2013 chambers year in year out and, and not having any success so it's very difficult to to have that that level of of inspiration when you're applying to someone um, but i think it's important to what i like to see is people that take the time to ask us about what we do how a privilege is structured that those kinds of questions in advance of applying um, it shows that you actually have an interest in where you're applying to rather than it just being uh, another number um, of an additional chambers they were applying to. So I think that's that's sort of the first thing that you you really need to structure your application to that particular set of chambers and and to be able to demonstrate why you're applying there. Why why do you want to join Guernica? I mean, what what is it about Guernica that interests you? Um, and then the other thing is is the the CV itself. Um, there, there is a tendency to use uh, sort of pro forma um, um, CV uh, formats on, on Microsoft Word or whatever it might be. I, I remember many years ago when I was in Bosnia um, and we, we were hiring uh, legal officers, effectively junior prosecutors, and we would get a lot of CVs with people and it would say at the top um, EC format. Um, and you know they just got it through um, somewhere online or they've, they've done it through LinkedIn that had formatted their CV and and now there is this tendency to use this this automated function within LinkedIn which I absolutely hate because it just shows laziness um, I think you have to take the time to design your CV in the way that shows who you are um, there needs to be a profile on there of, of you, just a couple of lines saying who you are and what you want to do. Um, so I think it is, it is very much that. Um, and one of, I think one of my pet hates is, is people portraying themselves to be something that they're not. Um, trying to show the person who's reading the application, um, or I suppose, they're trying to guess what the reader of the CV wants to see, 
rather than sharing who they are. And, and the one thing that I always say is that it's, it's very easy to be somebody else for a 20 minute interview. It's very difficult to be someone else for a 12 month pupillage. Um, and bear that in mind, you know, you, you, the real you is gonna come out eventually. Um, and so you've got to be comfortable with where you're applying to and they've got to be comfortable with you because it, it really is a long-term relationship and you've got to look at it in that way. Absolutely. I mean, I think if I think back to all my CVs, I think I've got about six or seven different iterations of CVs and of course, you know, between one thing and another, you really have to sort of think carefully before you put sort of pen to paper and, and craft crafts it. Absolutely. Sort of aligned to that, other than you know the, the formal application process, is the whole piece around networking, and we know that networking is important in in any sector, but I do think that it is also important in our sector as well. So, I guess like the two two part question um, to you is sort of how has networking helped in your own career to where you are now, and secondly, again, sort of what advice and tips can you offer to, to people who are listening to this who may feel that networking is a little bit awkward, difficult, counterintuitive for them, but it's something that I'm always encouraging young professionals to do because it can and does work <laughs> for, for us as well. It certainly does work. Uh, it, it's very important in this particular yeah. profession. Um, bear in mind that you know there, there is a Obviously, there is a, a, a large number of barristers and solicitors that are qualified um, to practice in this country. But those that do this particular area of work, it, it's, it's a relatively small group, um, both from, from the UK side and internationally. So when you go to conferences, you'll see many of the same faces uh, when you go there. Um, so I, I think it is important, um, and I would say, that from my side um so you know i spent a lot of, a lot of time speaking at conferences attending conferences as a participant uh, as a peer observer meeting people um having discussions with them afterwards and i would say that probably around 10 to 15 percent of the work that I have got, maybe even 20% of the work I've got has been through attending conferences and talking to people. Um, that, you know, you, you speak about something at a conference, somebody comes to you and actually, I'm quite interested in what you had to say. You know, what do you think about this? So you start talking, you exchange cards, and then, and then three days later you get a call um, asking whether you would be interested in looking at a particular case. That does happen. Um, and it, it certainly happened quite a lot for me. Um, Joining committees as well as attending conferences, I think, is a, is a very good way. Um, I mentioned earlier that the Bangladesh case was sort of one of the cases that made my career as, as an international lawyer. Um, and the story behind how I got that case was, was actually quite interesting because uh, um, I, I was chosen through a Google search. Um, my name was one of the first names to pop up as uh, you know, an international war crime specialist at the English bar. Uh, fortunate that uh, my name, Cadman, is, is at, uh, at the beginning of the alphabet rather than at the tail end. So I was at that time a, a very junior committee officer on the International Bar Association's War Crimes Committee. And because my name and CV was on their website when there was a search done mine was one of the first names that popped up and so they contacted me I got the case and the case lasted 10 years um, and made my career so um, I, I don't think I could stress enough how important it is to get involved with committees to get to attend conferences to 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 try and get speaking roles at conferences as much as you can because it does have an impact but I would say, make sure you have a business card. Um, because if I meet somebody at a, at a conference or at an event, um, I'm not gonna write anything down because I'm, I may be running between, between meetings, but I will take a card. And make sure when you speak to somebody, take their card and make sure you contact them straight after. I mean, even the same day. You know, just a quick note saying, you know, really nice to have met you. Here are my details. Would really like to, to talk in more, in more detail at a later time. 
something like that it it it, it does work no, absolutely i think you know I'm, I'm always telling young people to, to to go to places you know where the experts are going to be in the area that you're interested in be visible be at the front of the room okay we can't quite do that now in the time of lockdown but but sort of get yourself onto to webinars and conferences and very much agree with your point about sort of offer something there so that you start to craft yourself as a mini expert in that area and start writing about the, the field as well but but yeah talking to people and, and also i'm encouraging people to, to link to use their linkedin and to make sure that's up to date because i genuinely believe that's a great tool professionally as well um sorry we going to no sorry i was just agreeing with you absolutely yeah um and for many people we know that sort of the first step as you've kind of alluded to there is is kind of getting some sort of opportunity um voluntary opportunity in 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 the field and um an internship and i'd be really interested to hear what your thoughts are generally about that and for me i'm troubled by the issue around unpaid internships which we're seeing more and more international organizations and human rights organizations doing perhaps that's a separate conversation there but but the value of some sort of internship well, I think the first point I would say is that many of us that now practice in this field have done an unpaid internship at some point in our career, mm. um, hopefully at the beginning of our career, um, but at some point. But um, I, I am fundamentally opposed to unpaid internships. Um, I think it's wrong. Um, I think it's unnecessary and organizations that take interns can afford to pay them um, and if they can't they shouldn't advertise for it um, the, the 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 amount and the quality of work that interns tend to do in international tribunals and international organizations are at the level of a a young newly qualified lawyer so there is no justification for not paying them um, we at, at Gerica, um, we offer a paid internship scheme. Um, we, we set it up um, towards the end of last year um, called the Academy, which is to help people gain experience from, um, uh, I would say, difficult backgrounds that they may come from, um, if they may not have the, the financial stability to do an internship traditionally with somewhere like the UN or an international tribunal and so we offer offer them a paid in internship through us up to three months um, obviously pupillage pupillage has to be paid but I think it is it is quite uh, shameful that organizations are still able to to offer internships without being paid um, and I think that should stop but having said that I think it is absolutely necessary for people to to undertake an internship um, in order to be able to to advance in this in this profession. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's a, it's a path that we've all, all trodden in our previous life or professional life there. Um, but doing it in a in a responsible way, in a way where you are valued and where you are appreciated for the work that you do is has to be central. Yes, absolutely. If I can move sort of from the kind of working and breaking and breaking into the sector sort of to a little bit about the day-to-day -day life and, and sort of you have alluded to some very interesting kind of moments in your career, but what is a typical day in the life of, of a human rights barrister, given again that we're sort of sitting in lockdown now, but yeah, it might be helpful for people to have an insight. Well, obviously my day is very different now than what it was like uh, um, um, a year ago. Um, uh, I think the one, I, I suppose, the one comment I'd make is that uh, no two days are ever alike. Um, that's that's the one of the great things about about doing what I do is I, I I very rarely have time to get bored because there's always something um, something to do and something different. So um, so for example, um, today um, I I've been dealing with the uh, potential case at the International Court of Justice in which we're working with the Dutch government um, to hold Syria accountable for breach of the torture convention. Um, earlier on today, um, I was on a call dealing with 
um, a matter related to Palestine. Um, tomorrow, I'll be dealing with something to do with Yemen. Um, and then later in the week, um, uh, in, in relation to Libya. So I, I think one of, the, one of the benefits is that these, the, the sort of the, the array of, of work that we do um, enables me to, to have uh, a very, very different day. Um, at the moment, um, I suppose over the last couple of weeks, my days have been quite different because I've, um, I've been doing a, a, a charity run for, for prostate cancer. So I've, um, I'm not sure whether it was a great idea or not, but at the end of December, I decided to sign up to do 26, 26 miles in, in January. Um, so, so I decided to have a, uh, a dry January and, and run 26 miles, which I, I finished two days ago. Um, and I've, I've now interested enough to, to continue doing that. So I'll, I will run uh, every day or every other day. I will have um, uh, frequent calls with members of our team. And we have, we have members of our team spread out across the world. We have people in England, Germany, America, Colombia, Spain. So, so we will frequently have uh, calls with different members of the, of the team dealing with different cases. Um, I, I would say I'm not in court either physically or remotely very often. Um, I don't have uh, such a, uh, a busy domestic court practice. Um, I do a fair amount of extradition work still, but um, so I have a, um, a fairly big case in March, which is a five day extradition extradition case and I have a trial um, later this year at, in The Hague at the Cosmos Specialist Chambers so that's sort of when I will be in court but a lot of a lot of the work that I do is drafting, um, doing research, drafting written submissions, filing complaints with, with the UN and also you know, working with foreign governments um, trying to convince the Foreign Office to intervene in the case of a British national who's who's stuck um, who's stuck abroad on a on an Interpol red notice, um, so I, I mean I think the the one thing that I can say is that no two days are ever alike. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I mean, we just don't know kind of what's going to to come come our way, and um, and amongst the sort of work that you've done and the, and the breadth and array of the work that you've done. Um, what has been the highlight, or perhaps has been a couple of highlights of, of your of your career to date? Difficult question. <laughs> um, I, look, I think there have been many, many highlights. Um, I, I mentioned earlier the the Bangladesh case that that was sort of the case that made my international career. That was also one of the hardest cases I've ever worked on because um, so, that that was the first. A capital case that I'd worked on. So, so um, my clients were, were charged with having committed war crimes and crimes against humanity from 1971. Um, the case against them was very weak. Um, the institution that was trying them was was shown to have been entirely corrupt, um, and their ultimate conviction and execution were were uh, criticised um, by the by the United Nations and the international community. So. That was a very difficult case to work on, which I wouldn't say that there were necessarily um, any highlights, any peaks that I would take other than, you know, there, there were times where we would have a strong statement from the United Nations that, that had significance. Um, but I think there are cases where you're sort of fighting against a very loaded system and you, you contribute to an individual being freed at the end of it. So, so there was one case that we worked on um, in relation to a journalist in um, in Egypt, um, for example, um, a actually a photographer um, called Shokan, um, and so we filed a complaint on his behalf to to the UN Working Group on arbitrary detention. They ruled in our favour, um, and eventually he was released. You know that that for me was a was a significant moment. Um, I think the two highlights that, that I would focus on now though, um, the first was actually setting up Guernica 
Um, I think that's one of the things that I'm most proud of. And more recently, um, being instructed by the government of the Netherlands to assist them on taking Syria to the International Court of Justice. Um, I don't think there are many people that could uh, um, be able to, 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 to turn to a case of such significance in their career. So I think for, for those two highlights, uh, I am particularly proud. Absolutely. Um, the, something that, that kind of I, I feel very strongly about um, in our day-to-day -day life uh, as human rights professionals is having somebody to turn to as a mentor and the importance of mentorship and, and somebody who walks alongside you yeah. at whatever point actually in your career, be it at the start, be it when you're transitioning or moving or being promoted, uh, who can sort of be a, be a critical friend and help and guide you. And, and I think certainly now for young professionals, that's more important than ever really to, to, to offer that hand. Um, I just welcome your, your thoughts on that. As well. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I, I, was, I was very fortunate when, um, when I decided to, uh, to embark on, on a legal career. So I, I uh, first of all, when I transferred from doing business to, to law. I mean, I, um, the first person who I asked about that uh, was my wife, and my wife has probably been um, the, the, the strength that I need um, every day for, for the last 20 years. Um, I had a very, very supportive um, sister-in-law um, who, who also um, helped along the way. Um, but I think when I came to, um, to the bar, um, and I remember joining Middle Temple um, as my inner court, and I was I was assigned a a, a mentor or a, or a sponsor, um, and this this person was supposed to guide me in in the early stages of my career, um, and I remember meeting him, um, and again I won't mention his name um, so as not to embarrass him, um, but I remember. He, he asked me um, a series of questions. One of them was, what area of law did I want to practice in? And I said, human rights. And he, he told me that, uh, uh, my dear boy, that's not a practice, um, which was uh, sort of soul destroying really to be told that. And, but also to be told that, you know, I didn't come from the right kind of background to, uh, to excel as a barrister and, and he also told me that I was I was far too nice to be about to, to be a barrister um, and it was it was really difficult to take that um, and so then I remember going back to Middle Temple and asking if they could uh, reassign my sponsor or my mentor and they they then assigned me um, a another barrister who was incredibly helpful um, gave me a great deal of guidance um, and gave me, I, I suppose, the confidence to, to succeed. Um, but I think the, the one, I would say the one person who I always refer to, who I've already mentioned once today, um, who has always been um, of huge assistance to me um, since my days in Bosnia was Joanna Corner. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just so pleased that um, she's been elected as a judge of the International Criminal Court. Um, I think she, she will be an outstanding judge. And I actually hope that she goes on one day to become the president of the ICC. Um, because she, she's one of those um, completely selfless individuals that will dedicate as much time um, as is needed to, to help people. Um, and I think I try to do that now. Um, I try to to help people as much as I can because I can see how much that helped me. But I think on a daily basis, you quite rightly say that you need to have that continual support. And I think what we have in, in Guernica is based on that very principle is that whilst we are effectively barristers in, in, in independent practice, we also help each other and we work with each other and particularly now during a pandemic where there is the you know there is the the risk of um this really impacting on our mental health and i and i think that the the bar is probably one of the worst professions um for that um because it can become a very very isolated 
um, existence. Um, and so I think it's very, very important to do that. And I'm, and I'm incredibly lucky. I mean, I, I set up Guernica, um, my co-founder, Al Modena, who's a Spanish lawyer based in San Francisco, who, um, uh, ironically, whilst I'm talking to you, has messaged me about seven times asking to speak, because we speak every day. Um, I have Carl, who is another barrister in Chambers, who's, I would say, my best friend since, since university days, and who I also speak to every day. And so I you know, sort of surround myself with these, with these incredible individuals. Um, and, and I think because of that, um, we are stronger for it. I think I'm more, um, I don't know the, the correct way to put it, but I think I've been able to cope with all challenges that I'm confronted with as a result of having that sort of support network. Absolutely. I mean, it is so important that we have a good, strong group of people around us who, you know, because this work is so difficult and so tough, um, who we can collaborate with, offload on sometimes we need to, but but just have, have that general backup and support. And it kind of brings me very neatly to my kind of, you know, I guess, final, final questions or questions around sort of the nature and the downsides and the challenges that this work can bring and, and the self-care aspect, because we both experience, you know, very difficult work that we do. Um, we're working on torture, death penalty, sexual violence, these kind of cases. And we sometimes listen to and um, are witness to very harrowing testimonies. So or work in challenging environments, as, as you've explained there. And I think it's really important that the early stages of people's career, that they know and understand this work, that it does impact you, that it does affect you very deeply. So I suppose it's my kind of question is how, how best we can take good care of ourselves as human rights professionals so that we are equipped to do the work that we do um, in, in the best way that we can. Well, I think I would start by saying that not everyone is suited to this kind of work. Uh, and I mean, I have encountered even at Guernica, um, some people that, that simply can't, can't do this. Um, so for example, um, on one of our recent cases where we've been interviewing uh, victims of torture. Um, and I interviewed uh, a number of these individuals and then had colleagues in the chambers to, to help with the interview transcripts. And, and I could see that it was affecting one or more members of the team. Um, and so I think you have to understand that, that not everybody has the ability to cope with that. And sometimes, particularly if they are more closely connected to, to the situation itself uh, or the conflict, then I think it's all the more difficult to deal with because it's, it's so much closer to home. Um, but I think all you can do is ensure that there is, um, there is an outlet for support um, that you, particularly with, with young people, uh, young lawyers, young team members, that you prepare them for how difficult it's going to be. Um, you take them through it and you make sure that they're doing it in a, a very professional, um, unemotive way that they're not, they're not getting involved with how much, how difficult this is for the victim to be recounting, um, the, 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 the account, um, but to ensure that it is properly documented. Um, and I think one of the things, and I was actually asked this the other day by one of our team members, you know, when somebody is breaking down, when they're telling their story, and they're finding it very difficult to, to, to recount what happened to them, particularly when we're talking about sexual violence, um, how, how do you deal with that? Um, and, you know, the way I always deal with that is by ensuring that you continue to emphasize how important to this process this individual is and how important their story is. And I think that you, you, you do learn that um, recounting um, an account of what this person went through is, is part of the process of, uh, part of the healing process. Um, you, you see that people um, actually respond a lot better when they are actually talking to a lawyer who they've never met before or, or they don't know very well. Um, to be able to to tell that story um, but you also then have to think you know what is this doing to me as the person working on this case um, 
am I serving the interests of these victims um, by not dealing with it appropriately? So I think within, within our chambers, we do have uh, a very, very strong support network with people to, to deal with that. Um, I mean, I was, uh, I was discussing this with, uh, with a doctor uh, a few years ago. Um, and so the doctor asked me whether I'd ever, um, I, I'd ever talked to a professional about the kind of work that I do. Um, this, this particular doctor, although he's my GP, um, he'd also sp spent a number of years um, as a trauma surgeon in, in conflict zones. So, so he understood the kind of work that I did. And, and he said that you need to understand as, as strong as you think you are, it will have an impact on you if you don't talk about it. And, and he said that you know, the number of lawyers like me, uh, legal professionals that do this kind of work, that suffer from PTSD without really knowing it is, is incredibly high. Um, so I think that you, know, you, have to, you have to deal with that. I don't think the English bar deals with mental health. Uh, I won't say it doesn't deal with it well because I don't think it deals with it at all. Um, and I think there, there needs to be a lot more done for people, whether they're working in a difficult area like this in conflict or whether it's just being a barrister. I mean, it's, it's hard. It's, it's incredibly hard. Um, and you need, to, you need to be able to, to talk about it. And we're not, we're not very good at that. But I, I think you know, we're getting better. Um, certainly in Guernica, we, we have mechanisms in place to deal with it. But, but I think we can all do a lot better. Absolutely. I mean, I think I think we are starting the conversation about sort of trauma, trauma informed work, or, or and, and how it impacts upon us, and, and how secondary trauma is a is a real issue now for, for human rights professionals when they are receiving that information. When they are, I mean, I know certainly when I was an immigration and asylum lawyer for six and a half years, hearing the testimonies from survivors of torture or sexual violence most definitely had a very profound impact upon upon me and after six and a half years it, it came you know it, it was enough it was very very tough but we are we are getting better but more needs to be done absolutely absolutely i love and i think one of the things is having having an outlet having um doing something outside of of work and you have to uh, I'm, I'm i'm the worst person to be saying this because um it's, uh, my wife in particular thinks I'm a complete workaholic and so I find it very difficult to shut off from work but you need to have something uh, I think for me uh, it's always been kung fu but um, I think the running um, helps as well because it's you know it's it's that hour and a half where no one can contact you um, and I think you need to have that no absolutely just that time away from the screen away from from the, the pressures and strains of, of, of work yeah. So as we draw this to a close, um, what, what's the kind of final words of advice, pearls of wisdom that you can offer to anyone who, having listened to our conversation today, thinks, yeah, this is where I want my career to go, where I would like to be? Um, yeah, your sort of final words of wisdom, I suppose. Um, I would say don't give up. If this is really what you want to do, make sure you do it. Um, you know, don't listen to the people like I listened to initially by saying, you know, it's too difficult, doesn't matter how hard you work. If you really want to achieve this and you are determined and passionate, you'll find a way to do that. Um, I think use whatever, whatever you have, whether it is a contact, uh, whether it is a family friend, um, or if you encounter somebody like me or, or, or another legal professional, I mean, you know, hand them. Say, look, I want, I want to come do an internship with you. Tell me more about the kind of work you do. You know, what, what are you looking for in your candidates? I mean, I think you, you, you've got to, to, to really go after what you want and just don't be deterred. Um, Recognise that it's going to be hard, that there are going to be knocks. Uh, you're going to have to give up a lot of your personal freedom and, um, and, Certainly for the first few years of your practice, you, you won't have any kind of a social life. But then again, during the pandemic, uh, nobody has one anyway. Oh. <laughs> that, makes, that doesn't make much difference. But, uh, but I think, you know, you've, you've, got, you've got to be determined and just don't give up. Yeah, 
No, absolutely. I think I, I couldn't agree more with you on those points because you will get there. It may take time and you may have to take a little bit of a, a windy circuitous route at times, but you will, you will get to where you want to go. Oh, yeah, yeah um, exactly. I mean, I would say that being, being a, a, an Arsenal football fan, you know, you, you don't win the Premiership after the first match. You have to play all 38 matches to win a Premiership. Um, and I think that's, you know, that, that's the way you look at it. Yeah. Arsenal have absolutely no chance of winning the Premiership this year or even next year, but but I think that analogy is that you know it's 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 the long haul. It's the long haul. We're in it for the long haul. If people want to uh, know more about you, Gernica Chambers, what what's the best way that they can reach out to you? Um, they can. Um, I mean, there, there's a there's a way that they can send messages on on our on our website. If they go to uh, Gernica37.com, there's a there's a form they can fill in, um, and um, short of that, they can send in an inquiry to our general email, which is clarks at guernica37.com. Um, and just bear in mind that these messages do come to me. They do come to you know, the three the three of us that sort of form part of this, uh, myself, Armadena, and Carl. So we do see those messages. Um, if they want to speak to other members of our chambers, they're perfectly entitled to. So. I think we, we pride ourselves on, on being an open book and that we try to talk to people as much as we can and give them guidance and assistance and um, that's probably the best way to contact us. Brilliant, thank you. Well you have been a fantastic guest and so open and sharing your own sort of journey and, and offering really wonderful advice so a very big thank you. Thanks for listening to The Passion Factor, Pursuing a Career in Human Rights. Until the next time.